You're listening to sermons from South Point Fellowship, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpointfellowship.org. We're in a series called Reset. It's the book of 1 John. We're in our 10th week. We're in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1 and going to verse number 6. Um, And the title of the message is this, A Test We Cannot Afford to Fail. A Test We Cannot Afford to Fail. From cradle to grave, we're constantly taking tests. Child pops into the world, they immediately begin to run tests on that child. Whether it be blood tests or physical tests or hearing tests or seeing tests or responsive tests. And then as we get older, we still have Uh, medical procedures done, or we have school and we have tests in school. Then as we get even older, we know that there are MRIs and CT scans and PET scans and EKGs and blood tests and colonoscopies and on and on and on we go. We have these tests that are looking inside of us to determine if there is something wrong or if everything is okay. There are these physical tests, these academic tests, but even more important than a physical or an academic test is a spiritual test. And so look at the text with me, if you will. 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse number 1. Look at this spiritual test that we need to give, uh, give serious consideration to this morning. He says in chapter 4, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world today. Little children, verse 4, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. One one thematic statement I'd like to give you as we consider some simple truths from this text this morning. We must be able to clearly differentiate between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. We must be able to clearly differentiate between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So what is the text telling us? Number one, the text is telling us this. We must test spirits. That's in verse one. We must test spirits. Let me say some things about that and then get into what the words of the text are actually saying. There is the reality of powerful spirits speaking through human beings as their mouthpiece. Don't miss that. There is this spiritual world out there. There are these spiritual beings out there that are using human beings to speak through. There are spirits that exist that use human beings to speak through. Don't don't miss that. Now, we know from Scripture that these things happen in the pagan world. It's, it's a well-known issue in the pagan world. It was a well-known issue in Israel as you read the Old Testament. As you read the New Testament, Paul reminds the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. He tells them, you know that when you were uh, pagan worshipers and you were uh, idolaters, there were things that happened in uh, the church. There were mighty spiritual powers working through professed spokesmen of God. And there are, there are some possibilities that we can consider. First of all, there are some, some fake preachers out there. There are some people that create a bunch of fake stuff. And, and they use their voice or they use trickery to try to deceive people. But then there are real spirits that are not of God, but they are supernatural. Everything that is supernatural is not divine. There are evil spirits that are working through people even in churches today. And so the text would narrow it down. He uses the word every. 
the text would narrow it down and say there are two kinds of spirits that are operative in the world today. There are these two real entities that have a powerful effect on human beings, and only two. He says there is the, the Holy Spirit who influences and motivates believers, who is operative in the life of of believers, and there is real power. The Holy Spirit has real power, and we'll talk a little bit more a little later on about the operative power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. But then there's a second force that's 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 operative, and that is that is Satan himself, and he influences and motivates the opponents of Jesus Christ and His mission. And there is real power. So there are these spirits. There is the Holy Spirit and there is the satanic spirit. Both are real powers. Both have an objective. Both are operative in the world today. Here's what you need to understand about false teaching, okay? Because he's dealing with false teachers. And now that we've laid out that there are there is the Holy Spirit and there is the spirit of Satan and, and there are spirits that want to influence us for good and spirits that want to influence us for bad, here's what you need to understand. False teaching is not just bad information. And true teaching is not just good information. There is a spirit behind the teaching. And so he's writing to them saying, don't be gullible. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Stop uncritically listening to spirits that are of the Antichrist. These spirits that are speaking through false teachers and influencing people are real spirits with real power who, do, who are doing great damage to the church and to your family and to your soul. And what he's telling us in the text, if you look clearly at the text, stop listening to these spirits, stop believing these spirits, test these spirits to see whether or not they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Scripture points it out over and over and over again. Many false prophets. He, Paul, uh, or when we come to Acts chapter 20, we, we see them saying, hey, look, we're going we're gonna to gather with you, but wolves are coming in. False teachers are coming in. Matthew chapter 7 tells us false teachers are coming in. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 1. These teachers will be many. There are many false teachers. They, false teachers are individuals who proclaim a false message. They're teachers who speak under the inspiration of, holy, of, of evil spirits, and they have gone out into the world. They've gone out into the world. They're in the world. They're operative in the world. They've gone out on a mission of evil to subvert the gospel, to destroy the church, and to confuse the believer. So don't miss that. There are, there are real spirits that are operative in the world today that are influencing your life, that are influencing my life, that want to destroy this church, that want to destroy your family, that want to water down the gospel. We see it happening um, prolifically today. So there's the reality of these spirits, but, but he tells them in verse 1 to test, to test the spirits. What does it mean to test the spirits? To test means to make a critical examination of something to determine its genuineness. Make a critical examination of something to determine its genuineness. Test, test the spirits. Test the spirits in hope that when you subject it to this objective biblical test that it will pass the test. We need to under, understand that when it comes to evaluation and critically evaluating. Here's a couple of things that you need to understand. Uh, many people are spiritually superstitious. Many people are spiritually superstitious. They just believe everything. If somebody stands up and says, I'm the preacher, if somebody stands up and opens the Bible, they say, well, I believe it. And then if you say, well, wait a minute, that guy says something wrong, they're so superstitious, they think that if you say anything against anybody that's saying anything with an open Bible or anybody has the title of a preacher or any preacher that comes on TV, although all of their messages many times are false messages, messages and conflicting messages, people are going to say, you should never speak against a man of God. Scripture doesn't say that. 
Scripture says you better listen with a critical ear, not a critical ear to, be, to, to, to criticize, but with a critical ear to discern, to discern, to determine if this is true or false. One, one theologian said this, one of the most danger, dangerous things that anybody can ever do is sit under false teaching and believe that what they're hearing is true. That, that does tremendous damage to your soul when your brain is saying and your heart is saying that something is true, yet the content of what you're listening to is false. It, it will root itself in your soul and destroy you. So he says, listen, before you let anything enter your ear or you let anything enter your heart, you better subject it to an evaluation. Stop being superstitious about spiritual things, number one. Secondly, stop being suspicious about spiritual things. You see, we go to extremes. Some people are superstitious and believe everything, and some people are, God bless your heart, suspicious and believe nothing, right? And suspicion is a bad place to be because it sets us up as the arbiter or the gateway, number one. But number two, it presumes everybody's trying to get something over on us. Be careful. Be careful. If you think everybody's trying to get something over on you, it could be that if you assign that to everybody else, that that may be an indicator of your character, right? So, so don't be superstitious. Don't be suspicious. Don't believe everything. Don't believe nothing. Don't become self-righteous critics, but examine, analyze, evaluate, use objective biblical criteria. We see that happening in the Old Testament. We see it in Deuteronomy, and we would do well in our day to um, at least consider that in the Old Testament, somebody couldn't just stand up and say, I'm a man of God or I speak for God or the Lord told me something. You, you have this test that you subjected to in Deuteronomy chapter 13. Um, you look at the first five or six verses in Deuteronomy 13 and notice what happens here in the, in the text um, this morning. He said, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or wonder and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass... And if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord. What's he saying? Somebody come, walks in and man, they're performing great wonders and you're like, wow, what a great wonder. What a great sign. That must be a man of God. And then he says, oh, by the way, I, I don't want you to serve the living God. I want you to serve idols. I want to introduce you to idols. And by the way, we, we subject ourselves today to a gospel that has left us in our flesh and left us in our idolatry and moved us away from living lives of sacrifice for the sake and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom. We are idolaters. And we love the message of idolatry. We love the message of idolatry that says, you know what? You can have everything that's in the world. You can love the world. You can love the flesh. You can love everything that it provides. And you can still love Jesus too. That's a message that we've used to water down the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how a believer ought to be living. But also in Deuteronomy chapter 20, he gives us more criteria for evaluating teachers, excuse me, Deuteronomy chapter 18 for identifying false teachers in the Old Testament. And we can look at verse 15. He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever shall, will not listen to my words, that he will speak in my name. I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. So there is this criteria. There is this testing that takes 
place. Over and over in the New Testament, we're told to subject those that we listen to to a very particular test. So here, here's, here's the deal. He's, he's telling us, point one, we must test the spirits. Verse one, we must be able to clearly differentiate between the spirit of truth and the spirit of of error. We must test the spirits. But then he goes on in verses two and three, and he answers this question. This is point two. How do we test the spirits? How do we test the spirits? We've already read verses two and three. I'm going to go through them again and kind of take them apart. But we test the spirits on the basis of Christological confession. We test the spirits on the basis of Christological confession. Now, I'm probably going to say some things that are going to shake you up today, okay? You've heard, you've heard some things. You, you've, you've subjected yourself to some things. You've believed some things. We've been told a lot of things by a lot of preachers. We've been assured that we are followers of Jesus Christ based on certain criteria. But I'm going to break down what it means to confess Christ this morning. The text makes it very clear. He says in verse 2, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So there is the, the positive test. By, by, this, by this, by this very specific thing, by this one thing that I'm going to share with you, by this one criteria you know it is it is known there is this certainty that uh, accompany, accompanies it. So here's what he says, every spirit. Those are, those are the first two words, every spirit. So not some spirits, but, but every spirit. This is comprehensive of all spirits. Every spirit that confesses, every spirit that confesses. What does, what does the word confess mean? Let me, try, let me try to break it down for you and, and help you understand as I've grown in my understanding and, and I grow in my fear as I understand what it means to confess. To confess means to say the same thing. To confess means to agree with. To confess is to have an open, forthright declaration of the message as one's own position. In other words, when I'm confessing something, I'm confessing this body of truth, I'm confessing this reality, I'm not just saying it. I'm not just reading a cue card like an actor. I'm not just saying, oh my goodness, I found these magical words in the Bible and all you have to do is confess Jesus and you're saved. The word confess means to say the same thing. It means to agree with, but it means that you personally own in your heart the thing that you are confessing. It means that you own in your heart the thing that you are confessing. So it's not just saying magical words, but it's owning a position and staking your life on it. Somebody walks up and says, hey, man, just say these words. I remember uh, I went to Wrightsville Beach, North Carolina. A friend of mine that I loved dearly was dying of prostate cancer. He was, he was 50 years old, and I walked into his room. He was laying on the floor on a mattress because the pain was just just excruciating for him. And I leaned over and I'd known him for years and he knew where I stood and I knew where he stood. And I, I begged him, I said, brother, won't you believe the gospel? Won't you trust Jesus? Now, if there, there were magical words here, I could have just said, just say it, just say it, just say these words. But with integrity, and here's what he said. He said, I can't do it. I can't do it. Why? Because he didn't believe it. Because he didn't own it. Because he wasn't willing to rest his soul. I don't know if his pride was in the way. He had heard me proclaim good news to him on multiple occasions. I'd spent plenty of time in his home watching Boston Celtic basketball. We were dear friends, but he said, I can't do it. T 
To confess is not just saying magical words. To confess is to say there is this truth that I believe in my heart and I'm willing to own it myself. I'm willing to tell you that this is what I believe in my heart. But, but understand this as well. The word confess is in the present tense. He's not saying I confessed. There are those that would say, if you confessed faith in Christ at a point in time in your life, but now you have grown to deny Christ, that your previous confession, although you don't believe it now, is going to get you into heaven. But he's saying, no, no, confession is in the present tense. It means I have confessed and I am continuing to confess. This confession is something not that I believed in at one time or in a moment, um, but it is something that I'm believing now. It is an ongoing acknowledgement, an ongoing acknowledgement. So every spirit that confesses we see it in Romans 10, 9, and 10. We're very familiar with it. If, if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart God has raised him from the dead, right? Believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead. For with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. But it's not saying magical words. It's confessing something that I truly believe and own. We'll talk about what that means in just a minute. 1 John chapter 2 Verses 22 and 23, just a couple of pages over in our text. Notice, notice what he says. He says, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. No one denies the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And over in chapter 4 in verse number 15, Again, he uses the word confess again. He says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. It doesn't say whoever confesses has got a, has got a free ticket into heaven. He's saying whoever confesses that he abides in God and God abides in him, there is a relationship there, there is something that is believed deep within the recesses of the soul. So what is it that we must confess? We must confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. We must confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Let me try to break that down a little bit. The historical person, Jesus Christ, is the abiding union of the human and the divine in the incarnation. The problem was there was this heresy that was going around in about 100 AD, the Serentian heresy, which separated Jesus from Christ. The Christ spirit came on the man Jesus at his baptism, so this heresy goes, and empowered his ministry, but, but, but left him before his crucifixion. Only the man Jesus died and rose again, and essentially that is the denial of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That is the denial of the hypostatic union where Jesus Christ is fully God and Jesus Christ is fully man. And if you don't have Jesus Christ, fully God, who is a perfect human being, then you have no sacrifice for sin. You have no means of atonement, and you will die in your sins. When Jesus came into the world to carry out his messianic mission, he took on himself a real human body. That's what he's saying. But it has other implications for us this morning. Jesus is the permanent union of the divine and human, which qualifies him and him alone to be our mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. There, if Jesus Christ were not human, he could not represent us. He could not die for us. If Jesus Christ were not God, he could not go into the presence of holy God and represent us to the Father and be our advocate and plead our case and say that our sin debt has been paid for and he has risen victorious over our sin. It is absolutely essential that Jesus Christ be the incarnate Christ, be Jesus in flesh. That is the truth upon which all other great doctrines depend. The doctrine of the virgin birth, the doctrine of the atonement, the doctrine of the resurrection. If you deny the incarnation, if you deny the hypostatic union, Christianity crumbles. The incarnation, God becoming flesh, 
is the essential creed of Christianity. On this doctrine, all else which calls itself Christian stands or falls. Every person that freely confesses the apostolic message, you say, what is the apostolic message? The apostolic message is the message of the apostles, right? The message of the apostles. That's, that's what we want to say we are connected to, the message of the apostles. We're not changing it. We're not altering it. We're not doctoring it up. We're not watering it down. Every person that freely confesses the apostolic message concerning the person of Christ reveals that it is from God. That's what the text is telling us, that it pro- proceeds from God who revealed himself in his incarnate son. And it is in this God, and here's what, here's what we've got to understand. And it is in this God who is fully God and fully man, who came in flesh. It is in this God that, that salvation can be found. In this God alone that salvation can be found. Man can find salvation in none other than this God who robed himself in flesh. There is no other way to be saved from your sin apart from faith in Jesus Christ alone. No one anywhere at any time can be saved. Salvation is in Christ alone. So there is this doctrinal proclamation. Jesus Christ is fully God, is fully man, and there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby anybody at any time, anywhere can ever be saved except through Christ alone. No one else was the only begotten son of God. No one else left heaven and came to earth and robed himself in human form, and was born of a virgin. This is absolutely essential. And most of you in this room would say, well, yeah, I I believe that. I believe that. But but please let me give you some implications of that. The doctrinal proclamation of the incarnation of Christ in flesh must have or carry with it some practical implications application. Certainly there is identification. I identify with Christ. Certainly there is a reorientation. Certainly there is transformation. Certainly there is new life. This is God. This is God who has come in the flesh. You say, I acknowledge that. I agree with that. I said those words. There is this necessary, necessary reaction to one that we genuinely believe is God. There is, this, there is this necessary reaction to one that we genuinely believe is God. If I were to stand up today and say, oh, by the way, I woke up this morning and I had a vision and God told me that I'm God now. And y'all need to worship me. How many of you would say, ain't no way? You've lost your mind. They'd be, they'd be trying to get somebody to come pick me up and haul me off and take me to, uh, you know, uh, an insane asylum somewhere. You wouldn't believe that. But, but what if Jesus Christ walked in and he said, I am the Son of God. I am God. And I call on you to worship me. If you were to say, you know what, I don't believe you're God, therefore I'm not going to worship you. But if you were to say, I believe you're God, then, then it necessitates surrender and worship. Do you get that? You see, every, everybody with, with our easy believism and our decisionism and all of our statistics and calculations and our desire to prove how amazing we are by the number of decisions that we can kind of harangue people into, we're willing to say, hey, man, if you'll just say these words, you'll be okay. Come down front. Let me baptize you. Nothing really happened in the soul or in the heart. And if it did, praise God. But if we really believe that Jesus Christ is God in flesh, then then the response on our part must be a response of surrender. When he speaks, we listen. When he commands, we obey. We we surrender to the one that we genuinely identify as God. We worship the one that we genuinely identify as God. So beware of thinking that you're okay if you mouth the correct words about the identity 
of Christ. There's much more to it than just saying, I believe that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. I I love Colossians chapter 3. Listen to what Paul said in his letter to the Colossians. He said, if you then have been raised with Christ, right? If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. What? If you've been raised with Christ, if you you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and you identify with his perfect life, his perfect righteousness, if you identify with his sacrificial death as payment for your sin, if you identify with his victorious resurrection over sin, that's the gospel, then you have been raised with Christ if you have put your faith in him. And he's saying, hey, if you are born again, he minces no words about it. He leaves no room. Seek the things that are above. I'm telling you that this doctrinal position and this confession, if it is truly a confession, has implications for those who say they believe this about Jesus. They make this confession. He says, for you have died, verse 3, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And I just, I just have never seen in Scripture where there is this place for somebody to be in Christ but not have a Colossians 3 emphasis. It's not, hey, you said these words, you're okay. You said these magic words. So there is this confession There is this confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that Jesus Christ came and robed himself in flesh, and that Jesus Christ, while he was robed in flesh, perfectly obeyed the law and fulfilled all righteousness. Jesus Christ, as a perfect sacrifice, bore the full fury of the wrath of God on our behalf for our sin. Jesus Christ, because he was God of very God and satisfied the righteous requirements of God's holiness, rose victorious over sin, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father forever making intercession, being our advocate, pleading our case before a holy God, saying, I have paid their sin debt. And that is all rooted in our confession of who he is. But then there's, that's the positive test, but then there's a, a negative test. Notice what he says. He says, verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess is not from God, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. The negative test, every single spirit, all of them that do not confess, that sidesteps, that refuses to affirm, that refuses to unashamedly and robustly confess the full truth about Jesus Christ, that he is fully God and fully man, and that in Christ alone there is salvation Anybody that doesn't do that is not of the spirit of Christ, but of the spirit of Antichrist. The spirit of Antichrist is that force, that person, that power, that satanic power that opposes God and his purposes. It's not a failure to believe something, but it is rebellion against who Christ is. Not to believe these things about Christ is absolute heresy, and it's extremely serious. You cannot speak glowing words about Jesus Christ. You cannot say that Jesus Christ is a great prophet and refuse to accept the apostolic teaching that the historical Jesus was indeed God in flesh. If you cannot say that Jesus Christ was God in flesh, very God of God, and the only way to be saved, then you are of Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist. The denial of The apostolic confession about Jesus is not merely intellectual error. It's rebellion and a rejection of God and his word and his person and the only means of salvation. For a while, we would would recite the Apostles' Creed. Why why don't we recite the Apostles' Creed? And and everybody just like, "What what do you mean one holy Catholic church? I thought we were, you know... Non-denominational or Baptist, Presbyterians or Methodist, uh, Catholic means universal. He's not talking about the Roman Catholic Church. But, it, but it's a confession. It's a confession. And we, we believe that that confession takes us all the way back to the apostles 
That's why we would quote the apostolic creed. There is a spirit operative in the world. There is a world system. There is a philosophical system that is dead set on denying the apostolic confession regarding the humanity and the divinity of Jesus Christ and a denial of him and him alone as the sole source of salvation. And that is the spirit of Antichrist. There's a positive test. There's a negative test. Do you deny? Do you deny Christ? Do you deny who he is? Do you deny that he's fully God and that he's fully human? Or are you listening to teachers that do? Or do you even know what the people that you listen to believe? We must be able to clearly differentiate between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So, so we should, we should we, we've got to understand there are these spirits that are operative in the world. There is the Holy Spirit and there is the spirit of Satan. And these spirits are powers that are operative in the hearts and lives and speak through human beings. The scripture says we should test the spirits, but secondly, we should test ourselves. We should test ourselves. If you will look at verse four, he says this, little children, He's talking about family members. You are from God. You are from God and have overcome the world. Now, now listen to me. How many of us would say we are from God? How many of us would say that we are believers? How many of us would say that our confession is right, but we haven't overcome the world? The world's overcoming us. Notice what the text says. You are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit that's in you as believers, is greater than he who is in the world. So, so we need to do some self-evaluation. How do we test ourselves? Number one, we test ourselves by evaluating our contrast with the world. You are you are from God, they are from the world. He tells us that if you look at it in um, verse number five. They are from the world. You are from God, they are from the world. There's the, there is the, the contrast. We have these contrasting sources of origin and life. And I would ask you this morning as you test yourself, do the core values of your life, do your choices, do, does your character, does your lifestyle, indicate that you are in contrast to the world? Does the way that you live practically indicate that there is a contrast with you and the world? Or did you just say some words and believe you were saved? He's saying, look, test yourself. You are from God. They are from the world I fear that our identity is not one of contrast, but one of compromise. And we are destroying our witness and our souls in the process as we try to figure out just how close and how intermingled and how entangled we can be in our value systems and in our lifestyles and in our character with the world. If you're going to test yourself, ask yourself, is there, is there a contrast? But secondly, is there a conflict? Is there an ongoing battle? Is there... A struggle. When he talks about overcoming, obviously it presumes there is a struggle that's taking place somewhere. There's a life and death struggle with the world. The world opposes God. And so there is this struggle that goes on. The ideas of the world, the values of the world, is there, is there a conflict? So is there a contrast? Is there a conflict? And then finally, is there conquest? He says, you have overcome them. You are victorious. The word overcome is in the perfect tense. It means there, there, there has been a decisive victory that has been won in the past. The decisive victory that was won in the past was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He defeated sin. The Holy Spirit comes to live in you and comes to live in me. And so there is a decisive victory that's won in the past that has continuing results 
in the present. Christ overcoming sin, Christ coming to live in the heart and life of the believer should then consequently translate into those who have the Holy Spirit in them living lives that overcome the world. There should be conquest on the part of the believer by the work and presence and power of the indwelling Spirit of God. The believer through the work of the Spirit has victory. He overcomes the world. We are victorious. We have overcome the world because of the superior greatness of the divine enabler who is the Holy Spirit who lives in you and who lives in me. So test yourself. Test yourself. What are your goals? What are your desires? What are the things that you're trying to accomplish? What are the things that you're trying to accumulate? What are you doing with your resources? What are you doing with your time? Do, do you look just like everybody else that's never confessed Christ, that's of the spirit of Antichrist? Or are you struggling? Is there dissonance? Are you trying to figure it out or have you given in? Are you overcoming or are you, are you coming before your DNA group and you're confessing the same sin over and over and over again and not growing in your sanctification? Are you overcoming? The spirit inside of us is greater than the spirit that is operative in the world today. And you say, hey, I am a child of God. I am from God. They are not from God. My life should look different than their life. And then finally, verses 5 and 6, not only, not only how do we, we test the spirits and how do we test ourselves, but verses 5 and 6, how do we test teachers? Very simply, he lays it out. The, the first thing is the false teachers. He says they are from the world. They are from the world. Verse 5, he says they are from the world. He used the word world three times. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. That's the test. They're from the world. This is their origin, their roots. They belong to, they fit in, they identify with their values, their goals, their objectives, their philosophies mirror the values, goals, objectives, and philosophies of those who are in the world. Uh, I'm sad to say that that's just the case in many preachers' lives that would even confess Christ. When you hear of the, the dollar signs that are thrown around many times and all the shenanigans that go on so that, so that these uh, men of God can enjoy the things of the world just like everybody else and they're not living lives of sacrifice and humility. They are from the world. They look like the world. They smell like the world. They act like the world. They accumulate everything that everybody else in the world wants to accumulate. But then he says, secondly, they speak from the world. Again, it's present tense. They continually speak from the viewpoint of the world. They draw the substance of their teaching from the philosophy of the world. Beware of someone who's not saying, we're going to dig into the text today. Beware of someone that's constantly telling stories. Beware of someone that's, that's pr profoundly uh, creative and, and weaving scripture in and out or proof texting. You're like, oh man, he quoted a verse. He quoted a verse. And then he said everything that I like to hear. He said everything that just kind of flowed right along with my flesh. They, they speak from the world. They, they restate, listen to this, they restate the message of Christianity to conform it to the spirit and philosophy of the world. They distort and deform the, the, the true message of the gospel. F.F. F. Bruce, a, a, lingu a linguist, a scholar, said, there is no form of worldliness so inimical to Christianity as this kind of restatement taking the terminology of the scriptures and taking the terminology of the church and redefining it in worldly terms. That's why you've got to test these guys. They speak the message that the world wants to hear. I remember years ago, a buddy of mine, he, he called me, he said, man, I found a new way to preach. He said, I can stand up and I can preach to my people on Sunday, but I can go to a board meeting at AT&T on Monday and I can preach the same message and believe it or not, they love it. They love it. 
And that's popular in preaching today. We kind of we veil the hard stuff, right? We don't want to say the hard sayings of Jesus. You're going to scare people away. We don't want people who are openly living in sin to be offended when they come and sit. By the way, how are we going to pay for buildings? How are we going to fund ministry if you offend people with money? But if you please them, you can get money and fund ministry. Praise God. So we'll just tweak some things a little bit. We'll just tweak some things. And we'll say what lost people want to hear so they'll come and sit in our pews. They'll like our message. They'll give money. That's happening. That's happening all over the place. And he says they speak the message the world wants to hear and the world listens to them. Their message appeals to fallen man. Success with the pagan unregenerate public is what they're about. The world gave them a ready hearing since the world listens to those who speak its language. So we're testing these teachers. There's the false teachers, but then there are the true teachers. He says in verse 6, we are from God. This is John speaking. That's not me speaking. That's not me speaking. Okay, that's John speaking. That's Scripture speaking. Let me be very clear. I would expect you to subject me to the test of Scripture. So I'm not up here saying, hey, if people listen to me, they are of God. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not, I'm not putting myself in that place. I'm not putting myself in the place of, of, of John who wrote this letter of 1 John. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. True teachers speak a message that can readily be verified from the text of Scripture. True, true preachers speak a message that can be readily verified from the text of Scripture. And I'm not, I'm not talking about the twisting of Scripture. That's why you should search the Scriptures. That's why you need to understand the context of Scripture. That's why you need to be a student that's ever learning and ever growing. So when you hear something and it doesn't sound right, you could go back to the Word of God and you can either disqualify it or you can verify it to say it's true. And I beg of you to do that. I would ask no one in this room to believe Mark Powell. I would ask no one in this room to follow Mark Powell or any other pastor in this church. I would ask you to follow Jesus as we follow Jesus. And if we're following Jesus, certainly follow us, but verify how we live and what we preach from the text of Scripture, not just because we say so. True teachers speak a message that can be readily verified from the text of Scripture. Notice I don't ever get up here and say somebody told me something or God told me something. I just don't do that because I am honor-bound to stand before you and bring the Word of God. It doesn't get any better. It doesn't get any better. True teachers attract followers who can discern the difference between truth and error. True teachers attack follower, attract followers who have the Holy Spirit in them. So what happens in the process is, is that the hearer discerns the message and the teacher discovers the true disciple and there's something beautiful and power, powerful and it has this, this great substance in this relationship between those who proclaim and those who hear and those who grow and those who are sanctified and those who are following Christ and this thing called the church is not just where somebody shows up on Sunday morning from 1030 to 12 o'clock, but these people are in life-on-life -life relationships with one another, and they're growing in Christ together to the glory of God, and they're making disciples, and they're reaching the community. True teachers will not be accepted and heard by people who don't have the Holy Spirit and who are looking for a message more attuned to their fallen nature. And so he concludes, and I conclude, there are two distinct spiritual and moral realms competing for the control of your life, of your mind, and of your soul, and of all of the human beings around you. There is the spirit of truth that wants you. The Holy Spirit will live inside those who rest their hope in Christ and Christ alone and all that he has done to save us. And there is the spirit of error that seeks to destroy you and exalt Satan and create massive chaos everywhere it goes. We must be able to clearly differentiate between the spirit of truth 
and the spirit of error. Here's what I want you to do as you leave today. Number one, I want you to test the spirits. I don't want you to walk out of here saying, I heard some good information. I don't want you to walk out of here saying, I know what Mark Powell believes. I don't want you, I don't want you to walk out of here saying anything about the, the cool building or the screens or the outline. I want you to walk out of here saying, I better be actively involved in testing the spirits. There is the spirit of God and there's the spirit of Satan. There's the Holy Spirit. So I beg you this morning, test the spirits. Number two, I would ask you to test your own heart. I would ask you, are you overcoming sin? I would ask you, are you growing in sanctification? I would ask you, are your core values and the way you live your life in contrast to the world? I would ask you to test your teacher's Listen critically. I'm not asking you to be superstitious and believe everything we say. I'm not asking you to be suspicious and have what a friend of mine used to call the hairy eyeball, you know. I don't want everybody to sit out there and doubt what I say until it's proven true, but test what I say and test what everybody who stands here and preaches says. And then finally, I would ask you this. Have you confessed Jesus Christ as having come in the flesh. Have you confessed that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Have you confessed that Jesus Christ is the Messiah of God? Have you trusted Him and His perfect life and His atoning death and His victorious resurrection over sin? And if you have not trusted Him, I would ask you today to trust Him. He is the only way to heaven. And I would ask you this morning to surrender to Him and worship him this morning. I failed a lot of tests in my life. <laughs> I remember when I was in middle school, um, I, I, I didn't know how to study and I, I wasn't very smart and I'm still not. But I had these notes on a history test and I studied my notes and then it was time for the test and Miss McCoy passed the test out and I took those notes and I crammed them in my desk and, and they took the test back up, and, um, and then she called me after class. She said, I need to talk to you, Mark. She said, uh, she said I found these notes in your desk, and I believe you cheated on the test. <laughs> Problem was, I made like a 25 on the test. <laughs> I'm like, what kind of, what kind of uh, mentally deficient person must you think that I am that I cheated on the test and made a 25 on it? Folks, you will not cheat on this test. You don't want to fail this test. You don't want to fail to test the spirits. What's at stake is your eternal soul. What's at stake is your spiritual health. And so I would beg you this morning and plead with you this morning to test the spirits.